0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome Tara Lell. Tara is a British firefighter, mental health speaker, and author of the book, Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, which traces back to her experience of grieving her brother's suicide. Decades of personal struggles have led Tara to share her story and experiences in the hope that it may lead to others also finding growth through adversity. So Tara, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. I have read up on your story and it's really inspiring the work you're doing. So first of all, I just wanted to say, Thank you for making the time. I'm really glad to be able to have this interview with you today.
2: Oh, thank you, Nick. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So before we go into it, I'd like to just ask the guests to give a bit of an overview on their background and how they've come to do what they're doing now as condensed as you can just to paint a bit of a picture before we go into more detail about um, about you if that's okay
2: yeah sure um yeah it would be a very very long story if I went into everything (laughs) um uh I mean I think my whole life has really brought me to where I am now but so certainly my my personal experience um in terms of losing my mother when I was young um and then losing my brother to suicide and my father's mental illness when I was growing up and obviously that really flavored and colored the person that I became and how my life evolved um, I moved to Australia and became a physiotherapist. And in many ways, I think that was, you know, trying to get away from the pain that I had in London where I grew up. I moved to Australia and became a physiotherapist and then became a firefighter. Um, and then through my work as a firefighter, I started to get involved more in the mental health side of things, uh, being a peer support member of our peer team at Fire and Rescue and then seeing the impact on firefighters of so many of the things that we experience and we see on the job. Not just car accidents and fires, but also suicides. Um, and then went to a suicide myself, that impacted me with my background. Um, and so, really became in the mental health, involved in the mental health side of things, and um, became a mental health first aid instructor. Um, and then started a PhD, which I'm looking at uh, the impact of suicide on firefighters in both their personal lives and also on the job. And when we lose colleagues to suicide, um, so I think all of those things really brought me to where I am. Now, today, and then, obviously writing, I wrote a book about my own experiences, um, and that very much also flavored the way that I approach my research in terms of hearing people 's stories and and realizing the power of narrative for healing um, healing myself and and now sort of healing other people as well i think, um, and that also sort of flavors in, and impacted uh, my work today in terms of doing some speaking around that and trying to integrate a kind of story with research so that it has meaning to people
1: yeah wow and that is a lot of different things and you know you've um you've been able to say that in a condensed way very coherently and efficiently and um already I've my head's buzzing with there's so many things I want to go into you um in the mental health realm and um it's very similar I guess to a lot of the work that you know I've been doing and I love what you're saying about how um people learn through you know narrative and by and how it's healing for you know us and other people which I totally agree with I think it's so healing to tell your own story and talk authentically that we're not taught to do that but then at the same time that is so important for other people and if everyone can start to take that on and show more onth- authenticity and talk more openly that's how such a big change can happen across the board so it's so it's really about you know doing things like you're doing your book and talks and as many different avenues um so can you tell me a little bit more about the book how did that come about and um where where can people find the book at the moment if they want to get into it um
2: yeah well uh, you know the book um Really, I mean, it, you know, I'm so amazed it ever came to be what it is because I'm not a writer. You know, I was originally a scientist and then a firefighter and I really had no skills in in writing at all. But uh, before my brother died, he had written a lot of diaries about that spoke to the way that he was feeling and he was very, very intelligent and he got a place at Oxford University Um, and his writing was, you know, I read it as a 40-year-old and was like, wow, I could not have spoken that now, let alone as an 18 or 19-year-old boy. Um, And I'd held those diaries with me sort of for all my life really until around 2009. And I always knew I was going to do something with them and originally I really wanted to give him a voice for his pain and his story um, and to give his his life meaning really. And so I started transcribing his diaries and then around the same time I went to a call um, that was a suicide at work as a firefighter and I had a really visceral physical reaction to that and relived my brother's death in many ways. Um, I also had a friend who attempted suicide um, and wrote a letter, and that really deeply affected me. Um, And it felt like, and I had the breakdown of a a short but very intense relationship, and, and when that relationship ended, it felt like... The, the grief was so intense I couldn't really understand why it felt amplified compared to what it should normally have been until I realised that I was really reprocessing and reliving the grief of losing my brother and something mm. that I hadn't really processed for many years and I think all of those things triggered me to feel that it was time to start writing and, and that kind of evolved and what started as giving Adam a voice and my brother was Adam um, it, you know, really became about giving me my voice and the power of writing um for therapeutic healing was incredible i had no idea and i really wrote my life story down with no intention of it ever becoming a book um and then it kind of evolved into something i showed it to a few people that said you know tari you have to keep writing it it really has mm. um power to it and it became very much a dialogue between me and my brother which i think is in a way what brings it it brings it so much meaning and um to people when they read it Um, And so that actually came out in 2015 um, when I didn't have nearly as much knowledge as I have now around, Mm. you know, academically around mental health and certainly of suicide. And so I've written a new preface on why suicide is so, you know, why the mind of my brother's story is so important in the context of today's world and and never thought more so than now, really. And so I've written some new parts to it um, and it's just coming out um next week and so it's available wow. um through my website at com, but also on amazon and um book depository and through uh penguin random house in australia
1: yeah yeah wow um how big of an issue is suicide in society at the moment do you have you seen i mean it seems like it obviously is becoming a bigger issue with everything happening in the world and there's not enough education about it, you know, even before COVID, how big of a problem do you see that being?
2: I think it's enormous, you know, and I think we really have to reframe that conversation. It's something that I'm really passionate about, that we have to start to really look at it as a public health problem, not just a mental health problem, and look on it from a, a sort of social and community and cultural level, as well as, you know, a psychological illness. And um, I think there's so much work to be done in that space. And we know that, you know, for every single person that dies by suicide, up to 135 people are directly impacted by that death. And are then at much greater risk of mental ill health themselves, whether it be depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, um, but also with, of social isolation. And, and that's so important in how destructive that social isolation is as well in, in how it disconnects us and that disconnection is so um, destructive to our well-being. So I think there's so many things that, you know, and suicide rates, certainly in Australia, have been going up in the last few years. And we haven't got the statistics, the most recent statistics um, that will cover, you know, what's happened in COVID. But Lifeline have received a 30 percent increase in their call rates over the last few months since um, uh, since March. Um, and, you know, I've certainly been exposed to many, many suicides in the last few months. And I think that that will very much play out in the next few years as, you know, all the risks that people, you know, are so brought out, exaggerated through COVID in terms of social isolation and lack of touch Mm -hmm. and, you know, financial hardship and social disconnection and all of, and obviously anxiety and distress and grief, grief around, you know, the loss of the lives that we had. Um, so mm-hmm. I think there's so many things that make it just such an important conversation to have. And we need to learn and how to have safe conversation around suicide. And I think that's what's really important because people understandably don't want to talk about it. And they're afraid that if they do talk about it, will it trigger something? Will it put other people at risk? Which, which is true. And that's why it's important to, you know, build our own knowledge around it. Um, but how can we create safe conversation so that Because also people find the ability to talk and connect through actually voicing perhaps that they may have had their own suicidal thoughts, that that is so important for people and it actually really helps to keep them safe. And we know that directly asking somebody if they've had thoughts of suicide is a really important thing to be able to do and have a skill to have in terms of protecting people and trying to keep them safe.
1: Yeah, and I mean, from what I had read... um, is it, is it shown that talking about it and if we can change that public conversation around it, it will have a positive impact in, in prevention? Is that is that what the research shows?
2: Yeah, it's the way that we talk about it that's important. So certainly yeah. there are very media guidelines. So we know that talking about the means by which somebody uses to take their own life is not healthy and, and it is, mm-hmm. can be harmful. So I try always to, to not talk about the means but to talk and not to glamorise the, the you know, somebody that has died by suicide, because we know yes. that, say, when somebody famous takes their own life, suicide rates do spike. So the way that that is portrayed in the media is very, very important. But what we do want to, but it is important to speak about is allow people to take some of that shame away that people feel for maybe having thoughts of suicide. And so the conversation itself is very important, but to focus on, you know, there are other ways to solve the problem of the pain that you're in, which, you know, in many ways, suicide is, is an attempt to solve the problem of intense psychological pain and so trying to give people a sense of meaning in purpose in life and what gives their life meaning is really helpful in keeping them connected and and also focusing on you know many people that have read my book who perhaps had suicidal thoughts have said you know reading it made me want to stay alive because it made me realize how much damage i would be doing to my family and the people that love me if i did take my own life And most people that do take their own lives or or that attempt suicide, you know, they don't want to die. It is just I need, I really want, I can't cope with the intensity of the pain that I'm in. And I can't find any other way to end my pain. And that, you know, I am actually that total complete belief that I'm a burden. I'm a burden on those people around me and not necessarily realising actually the impact of their death on on the people that love them so i think you know really focusing on on those things is important and that creates safe conversation around suicide
1: yeah yeah absolutely and yeah it's a just such a crazy area and i guess there's so many um factors that build into it it's really that mental health spectrum across the the board of we need more education in mental health, we need uh, people need to understand um, how to identify, how to have more self awareness, how to create better habits, how to talk about it. Like you're saying, and it it can get to that point where it's so overwhelmed that it feels like there's no way out, um, and a lot of that's because people aren't in an environment where they are taught how to talk about it or understand how to talk about it. So i think i feel like and i guess that's another question for you do you, is it it's a very multifaceted do you do you think and it's just so many factors need to come together for this to change uh long term
2: absolutely i mean it's such an incredibly complex problem on, on so many yeah. levels and you know you know that if it was simple we we would have found a better answer to it so there's many different aspects to You know, trying to solve that problem. Um, and I think we just need to, you know, some things we're starting to do well, and there's many, um, you know, strategies out there that that try to target different, different, um, parts of our society and how we educate, say, our GPs and how do we educate our teachers and, and things like that, which are very important. But I still think there's stuff that we're missing and we are missing something in our suicide prevention efforts, clearly because we're not, we're not really being successful. Um, mm-hmm. But I agree in that, you know, really teaching kids how to struggle with very difficult emotions is, is really, really important and that if they can find a way to struggle well... That, that can be so growthful and and certainly that 's what I discovered through my own struggle that you know i i didn 't struggle well if you like um, mm-hmm. and i didn 't have support to do that um, for the first mm-hmm. you know at least half of my life but But now I've really learned those techniques and I think, you know, there's so much around, even around death and how we view death in our society that we don't talk about it and we live like we're never going to die. But I think if we actually engaged in that conversation at a cultural level and and some other cultures do it very well in in, in recognizing, acknowledging death and what we can learn from that, 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 you know, that is the one you know certainty in life, and yet we never talk about it, um, and we don't know yeah. how to deal with it and yet and we will all experience grief at some point and If that was introduced at a young age, I think it would be different because it would make people live differently and think yeah. about what it is that makes us want to live and you know at an early age and gives our life meaning and purpose and those things that we know are fundamental and so many people in society now are really struggling with that that very thing of what is my purpose and what's my meaning and you know and struggling to find that because we all have in our society the vast majority of us have everything that we need at our fingertips and so I think reframing all of those things is really important and actually would play a fundamental part in suicide prevention, but it's not quite as obvious and um you know trying to, as as um other strategies are in terms of how it actually helps
1: yeah, and no, I mean in the in sort of my experience in you know the mental health um it there's so much reactive services and there's so much people will take it seriously when something happens and then they'll put things in place, but that's still a band-aid And like you're saying, you know, for things to change long-term, there needs to be really, it, it is, it's not just like what you said earlier. It's not just looking at in this specific area of mental health, what can we do? It's a full, you know, societal change. It's like, how do we, and it's so hard to change now because we live in a world where, um, and that's why a lot of people are struggling so much, I think with, the COVID situation as well, where it's all about what can I accumulate and um, what's next. And we're taught to define ourselves by um, external factors. And we're not taught like what you just said before. We're not taught. How do I just take a step back and just learn to understand who I am, what my values are, what my purpose is, what I stand for, not anything to do with these external factors on my job or anything else. How do I just identify that first? And then, if we really have that um, and we're rounded in that way, then we can deal with the other things that come up. But, um, you know, I, I, you see it all the time as well, like what you were saying with talking about, you know, things like death, even on a more simplistic, on, on, well, not more simplistic, on a more um, uh, day-to-day level, even just I've experienced it so much when you're talking to someone about um, just something um, more deep, than a normal surface level conversation they'll shut down and say no no that's i can't why why are you being so serious like i'm not being serious i'm just trying to talk authentically and society teaches us to push all of that stuff away so it's um i don't know yeah it's like a big a big thing isn't it
2: yeah i completely agree with you and i think you know i often think when people ask you that question you know is it possible to have it all and i think well the problem's in the question it shouldn't be about having; it should be about being. And, and what does having it,
1: it all even mean? It's like it, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like... and
2: it, and it just places that emphasis on all the the kind of the things we're unconsciously taught from a child, you know. And all the the you know, I remember growing up and hearing um, fairy tales about you know, you grow up and you get married and and have kids and and life's all wonderful. And and it's it's not it it's framed that you should just expect to be happy and that there's no there's no work or effort involved in that and I think it does take work and it's certain you know we're not taught exactly as you said that how to have that healthy relationship with ourselves and everything so much of our society is about disconnecting us from ourselves and and numbing difficult emotions and you know that's so harmful and destructive I think in in how we relate to ourselves and if we can't relate to ourselves then how do we relate authentically to other people
1: yeah it just sort of it like it, it almost spreads like a virus like the same way that COVID spreads if one person is taught that no I shouldn't express myself that's wrong that's embarrassing the next person is going to feel that and that just gets spread so then no one can you know express and talk authentically and and you know we don't get the we, we do we push back emotions which is so unhealthy like instead of expressing what we feel or Um, being able to even for men we're conditioned that no that's embarrassing or weak to cry and and then it becomes so conditioned that it's difficult to do it and these are all things that are really really healthy to do we're meant to express these different things and not just push things back all the time and go against you know what we what we feel we should do but yeah yeah I mean and and I guess in in the work you're doing do you see that mental health issues and also suicide are a bigger issue Yeah, before COVID, with um, the world we live in now, with sort of social media, mass media consumption, just the incredible pressures that we have, the fast-paced nature of the world, has that shown to have increased that, do you you think?
2: Um, You know, I don't know specifically, I don't know whether we've made... It's been around quite long enough to have a specific causal link, but yeah. everything points to that fact. There's certainly correlations with, you know, um, social media. Certainly, and, and you know, because issues around bullying and harassment have such huge impacts on mental health, and, and we know that sort of adverse childhood experiences. So, forty percent of adults with a mental health issue you have had some sort of adverse child experience, childhood experience. So whether that's, um, you know, abuse or neglect um, or sudden bereavement. But so that plays out for us, you know, as we become adults. And I just think that, that's, that that has such a huge impact then on on our subsequent sort of suicide rates and the things that kids are exposed to now with social media. Um, and all sorts of things, and and just that you know we know that anxiety levels are going up through the roof, and anxiety levels you know anxiety is by far and away the biggest uh, mental health or, or mental illness in society uh, you know f- f- way above um, depression um, and I think we 're only just coming to realize anxiety and I th- is quite so prevalent and equally as destructive as depression, um, mm-hmm. but we 're only really starting to recognize that, and I think you know that the pace of change you know for us in in our lifetime has been enormous and it's only getting more and so we we're struggling to adapt and keep up with that and i think that very much plays out as anxiety in our society
1: it's very hard to keep up with because it's just changing all of the time and the way we receive information and i mean looking at what's happening to people right now with you know covid with just information flying everywhere and it's hard to decipher what's real and what's not and every you know it's just it is unless you are very strict and monitor what you look at and when you look at it and how you look at it it's destructive and our brains are just simply not meant to be used in this way to be consuming this much content it's not good for us
2: absolutely I, I mean I completely agree and I, I see that I feel it myself you know I I quite liked lockdown in some ways because everything went quiet and all the emails 5,000 emails didn't come through and, and there was nothing else all the distractions would go on and I could just focus on my research and, and there was no so much less external noise and it was like oh this is, you know, and then, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the last sort of month or two is suddenly like, oh, well, wow, it's gone, you know, gone crazy again. And you can feel that it's a constant struggle to try to manage, manage that and and the level of information coming in and, and find ways to manage it. And I think it's certainly something that I haven't perfected by any means and I, I need to really work towards finding ways to to manage that and, and I think we all do um, because it's just constantly, there's all sorts of things that are just constantly bombarded with um, and even that, you know, collective sense of trauma really from, from the COVID virus, I think that collective trauma will change us and that sense of pervasive anxiety and what that does to our, our nervous systems and in mm-hmm. hypersensitizing them and and all those sorts of things, I think, you know, we're only just beginning to see the effects of that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, anxiety is just, yeah, it's such a big thing. And I think um, a lot of people probably don't even realise that they, how anxious they are or how, because it's become so normalised to uh, be in these environments and just to be experiencing the things. And and again, from the conversation and how we've been taught to communicate, um, if you're struggling, no, just push on, you'll get through it, you know, instead of actually addressing things. And Um, you know, that that makes it a lot harder to change as well because um, how do you cut through when, you know, people are, when it is so normalized? Um,
2: Yeah, and I completely agree. I I think you're right. I think many people don't realize that they're even living with depression because they, or anxiety, even more so anxiety, I think, because, you know, they just, it's part of life. And yeah. I, I've seen people really struggle so, so much with that. And it's like, and then it also becomes in some ways, you know, when that's so normal, it's almost, even if it's slightly destructive, it's kind of safe because you know it. And it's like, well, if I let go of that, then maybe I won't be as productive and maybe I won't get as much done and maybe I won't be able to do all the things that I do now because, you know, anxiety in a way is kind of speeding everything up. So, you know, you can, in a way, you can be quite productive or might appear to be productive but um you know and so people fear losing that because they've become so familiar with it
1: yeah and i've i've spoken to so many people that have said that exact thing and even with things like meditation saying i don't want to do it because i'm worried it actually might calm my mind to the point where i'm you know not as driven to you know to work myself into the ground um and things like that and Uh, and even you know you people that have identified sometimes their driving force for why they want to achieve something it might be because of some trauma or being bullied as a kid and you know it's one level to get the awareness but then often when they have the awareness they realize okay um yes it would be healthy for me to to deal with that but that is giving me such a driving you know force to try and achieve that maybe I should just keep it there and yeah it's not healthy but it will help me get the end result but you know if you until you actually fix these internal things it doesn't matter what you do or achieve or whatever it's not going to make you happy you're not going to have peace of mind because you're going to be still that pain doesn't go away nothing makes it go away other than doing that personal work on yourself
2: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, that that's, you know, change is so so hard. And especially when it's such a familiar pattern for us. And, you know, you it's almost like the pain of, of moving forward has to become less than the pain of where you're at. And that's why I think so many people, you know, have to have something quite almost catastrophic to or something really significant happen to drive them to go, no, I need to change and I yeah. need to do everything I possibly can when the pain of where they are becomes so much that they realize they can overcome the pain of moving forward.
1: Yeah yeah no definitely. Um, how how difficult was it for you dealing with um, suicide in your family? Did that take you a, a long time to find, navigate how to how to deal with that and to move forward and um, I guess you know you talked about it a bit before but how difficult on a personal level was that experience for you?
2: It was, I mean, it it changed me. It changed me at mm. a core level and it changed the person that I was. Um, mm. And, you know, now it has made me the person I have become. But, you know, for 15 years, I I just could not, I couldn't turn towards it in any way. And my mm. way of coping was, you know, I started having panic attacks and, uh, for me, that was terrifying because I felt like I wasn't really in the world and I thought I was going crazy. And because of my father's mental illness, mm. um, I, and because of my brother's death, I, I thought, is that going to happen to me too? And so that was absolutely terrifying for me. Um, and so the way I coped was just to keep moving and keep running, um, and, and never to stop. And I moved to Australia. Um, you know, I didn't intentionally think that I wanted to get away from what The pain that i had in the uk but i think you know it probably was unconsciously part of it um and i think you know it was that's where trauma comes in it shatters everything you know about the world and what you believe the world to be in terms of it being safe and good and so you have to almost reconstruct yourself and your life and, and find a new normal. And after my brother died, I wrote to a friend and I was 17 and I said, you know, I don't want to die, but I don't know how to live. Um, wow. And that's exactly how it felt to me. And, you know, so much of my life, really, my 20s was really about running away from from everything that had happened and I never wanted to hear the word suicide and I very much dissociated my brother's death from anybody else that had taken their own life because to me he was perfect and no one was going to damage that and he wasn't what I considered to be, you know, somebody that would take their own life. Um, And it was only really in my early 30s that I started to turn towards that and started to question and really, you know, that question why really haunted me for a very, very long time. Um, but in the end, you know, it was turning towards that question, why, and trying to make peace with that. Um, not just for him, it kind of morphed into my own why of what's my why for living, and, and actually yeah. that in the end was what led me to grow and and empowered me to realize that um I could be the person that I wanted to be, and I felt for probably 15 years of my life, or most of my life, that I was constrained and I was this person desperately trying to get out but I was so locked in that nobody could see me and I was so ashamed you know I had such a huge sense of shame around my brother's death um, that I hadn't been enough and I wasn't enough to save him and I wasn't enough to save my mother or my father really Um, and you know I think suicide I very much saw my brother's suicide as the ultimate rejection of my love and that my love wasn't enough to keep him alive and that played itself out in my relationships, because if you don't think your love is enough, then how can you possibly have a healthy relationship, and and really it's been, you know, taken me a long time to um, get to the place, you know, I'm, I'm 49 now, and um, you know, I don't have, I'm not married and I don't have children, and it took me a very long time to realise really that that was the ultimate cost of his death, was that I didn't get married and have children and do all the things that I really wanted to do. And it's only really now that I feel that I'm in a healthy enough space myself and I have healed my the relationship to myself really enough to to realize, you know, that the last relationship that I had was, you know, he really taught me how to love. And I now, for the first time in my life, feel like actually I can have a healthy relationship. But, you know, I'm now 49 and that and my brother died you know, over 30 years ago. So it's taken me that long to get to where I'm at now.
1: Well, yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And it's, you know such a beautiful thing though to hear you you know going through that entire um cycle and getting to that point where you and and being able to talk openly about it and um you know it's it's amazing that you have worked through it and uh i'm sure that has and even from this conversation now will help so many people listening to it which is you know such an important thing um i hope uh, so yeah yeah. no
2: i think you know it was interesting when i was listening to your story and i heard you talk about how you got into acting and and i guess finding your voice and and i think you know and i really it really resonated with me because i had you know Mm. exactly exactly that same feeling of feeling like I, I a was so ashamed i couldn't have my voice and i never wanted to be heard i didn't want to be seen and then finding it and the things that i did to try to find my voice and and certainly writing was a hugely important part of that um but also I actually started doing singing lessons, which, um, were the most petrifying thing I've ever done in my life. Like I was terrified of it. Um, and you know, bearing in mind that I'm a firefighter and I row surf surfboats and I do all these things that people think are frightening. And, um, and yet, you know, you put me, she put me in front of a mirror and said, sing. And I just was like, Ugh, I can't do it. Um, and I never, never sang happy birthday when I was a child because I was so ashamed of my voice, I think. Um, and so I did these singing lessons. Um, and I remember the singing teacher, and her, her name was Joy, which I thought was so apt. And she said to me, you know what, Tara's singing is about allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Mm. And I remember yeah. I've never felt more vulnerable than when I stood in front of that mirror. And yeah, And yeah. she asked me to sing, but... um it was actually incredibly important, I think, in allowing me to find my voice. And then, you know, I, I don't, I'm a terrible singer, I'm atrocious, but um, but I do sing Happy Birthday now. And I think, you know, that played out also in then enabling me to start doing public speaking, which I had never even, never imagined that, that you know, there was a way that I could ever do that. Um, so, you know, so anyway, your story really resonated with me in that sort of different ways, but the same thing about how important finding your voice and being able to express yourself is.
1: Yeah, it's a very, very similar sort of process, I guess And and that was the same for me Yeah, that's why I did those things Because I felt so suppressed And didn't know how to communicate all these things I was feeling And needed to find ways to do that and communicate it And it is such a hard thing And I still struggle with it in the acting Of, you know, sometimes you get caught in your head And it's so hard to be vulnerable But it also, I think nothing feels better When you can just completely let go and, you know, do that Uh, it's just so cathartic Uh, but we're so conditioned not to do it that um, you know you can feel like a minority in doing it because it's um, goes against the conditioning that gets you know drummed into us from sort of the moment we're born pretty much
2: yeah absolutely I you know I completely agree and I think it is so hard um, to kind of find that real sense of um being in tune with who you are and where you're at and being able to express that. But when you do, there's such a real gentle solidity to it and and a, such a, um, you know, I always feel so grounded and it's so empowering when I have been able to be authentically share my story. And, you know, the way that it lands with people and the way that they receive it when you're authentic is incredible. And I, I really learned that through my book um, and... You know because I didn't think that I was writing a book when I wrote it, I just wrote, mm. I think that helped it to be authentic and and that it didn't matter whether it was published in the end at all. It was just the fact that I had written it and I had been me been yeah. fully me and and I hadn't it was exactly who I was and what I wanted it to be, and it wasn't tainted or colored by anything else,
1: yeah, exactly, which is then what actually makes it so compelling and useful for other people to read because of that that fact which often in those kind of projects they can start as being authentic and then by the end of it it turns into something completely different because of all the other factors so I think that's such a great thing and a good message what you've just said there you know doing things not for the end outcome but just because it's true to yourself and because it's what you believe in and if you can always follow that it's you know it's hard to do but that's going to be the that that's the kind of stuff that does start to change you know conversation and really make an impact in the world so it's you know such an important thing um another thing yeah um another thing i was thinking about before when you were saying um with your journey and how long um that's taken um to to work through these things uh how how can someone um you know what what's your 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 thinking on uh, how, how do people go about that process you know before something dramatic happens but you know in a healthy way what are things they can start doing to try and just you know work on 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 self love and all these different you know inner workings how can people start that process and go about it
2: i mean i think the first stage is really making a commitment to it and and yeah. going you know what well, i want to change my life i yeah. want There's something in my life that I'm not happy with that I want to make a commitment to change and then really prioritizing that above all else and, um, and working and being, making a commitment to put the work in. And, um, you know, for me, the, the really two cornerstones that, that totally changed my life was certainly finding a a good therapist. Um, and over th- over 17 years I've had three different therapists who have all been wonderful in different ways but they've been it's been a 100% about finding the right person at the right time for you and you know keeping really committing to finding that right person whoever they are because I think it's incredibly difficult to embark on that journey on your own um, yeah. and having yeah. that really healthy professional support um, is invaluable and there's no way I could be where I am now had I not Really invested a lot of time, energy, and money, um, you know, in finding good people, good mental health professionals to support me through that process. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think writing my life story down, and I think for anybody, no matter what your story, to write your life story down like nobody's ever going to read it is such an important and valuable thing to do. And, you know, we never, we never put all of our memories together we, we have intermittent memories of things and when you write you have to kind of put all those memories down and make some sense of them and, and really use even from a physiological perspective use a different part of your brain when you write to when you speak or when you think and it really does give you a different perspective to kind of make sense of your life and it's like a jigsaw puzzle and that's a really he- healthy thing to do and it certainly gave me self-compassion and self- understanding. That there's no way I could have had had I not taken that time to write my life story down and you know I I gave up work as a physiotherapist um in order to give me time to start writing um I you know I often joke that maybe I'd be living in a house if I hadn't invested all that money in in therapists but um but I would you know I would do that again without a doubt because if you don't have your your psychological spiritual and physical health you know you really I just you don't have anything and so I think 100%. prioritizing that and committing to yourself that you're worthy of it you're worthy of being the person that you want to be and and to give yourself a chance to to be the person you want to be and that you can be and you know don't look back on your life when you're you know there's the great book the five regrets of the dying by Bronnie Ware and I think it's such a fantastic book because she interviewed a whole uh, many many people at the end of their lives on, on what were their regrets and you know none of it was about having more things it was all about i wish i spent more time with the people i cared about i wish i hadn't worked so hard um i wish i'd let myself be happy and and they're so telling and i think we really need to learn from that and learn from that before it's too late you know people always that become you know suffer from a, a terminal illness always mm-hmm. go I you know it, it changed the way i thought and i wish i'd done this and that and i think really acknowledging that we can know that, to try to know that before something like that happens um, yeah. is really important. And and investing in, you know, one of the most important things I think is really, and, and there's studies on, you know, one of the biggest studies from Harvard on um, adult well-being shows that it's the quality of our relationships that really matters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many people in your life do you have that really have your back? So that in the middle of the night, if you needed someone or you were frightened, how many people could you ring? yeah and that if you have people like that in your life that that is such an important factor in well-being and i certainly invested you know i don't have any family in australia um and as i said I, i'm not married but i created my own family from my friends and i think that we can all do that but we don't invest enough time in the quality of our relationships and spending time with people and meaningful time and quality time with people and i think that that's something that would make a really significant shift if we started to do that
1: yeah oh, massively and i was i was talking about it the other day and it's you know when you're on your deathbed and it's so powerful all the stuff you just said there and i haven't read that book but i'm going to because it, it sounds sounds fascinating um but you know if you if i think whenever we're putting too much pressure on ourselves or worrying about things. If you really try and simplify it and think uh, if I was on my deathbed, what would I actually care about? It. It's exactly what you just said. You're not going to sit there and think, you know, uh, I I remember when I, you know, um, made all this money or impressed these people or did this or did that. You're, it's going to be pretty simple. It'll be about, you know, the, the people, the relationships you had, the people that you loved, the things that, you know, really gave you joy that were, you know, had that purity behind them. And, um, it again goes back to, you know, I I just think we're taught in the complete reverse of how we should be taught. Like what you said before, um, we would all, you know, love to have more money or whatever. Um, and that's great if we get that, but that comes a very, very distant second to getting ourselves right, because if you don't get that right, uh, you can accumulate as much as you want, you're still gonna be searching and, and not feeling right and, and unhappy and there's no end to it. And um, life is just too short, but it's, it's such a difficult thing to do. And I'm so aware of it. And I get caught up in it uh, daily sometimes cause I'm, I'm ambitious and I'm working on different things. And even being in this realm, it's just so hard when you're in a society that keeps teaching us that we should be valued or valuing ourselves based on achievements and this that and the other um and I don't yeah I think it the conversation needs to be more about you know not the value should be how much impact can I make not how much money or fame or status or whatever but um it's such it's such an important message what what you said about that and I think it goes you know that perfectionism um sort of topic I think is so important that people are taught that there is no such thing as perfect and there's no right or wrong way. And all these apparent rules that we're following in life who said that we have to do that or who said that that um, is the right or wrong way to do it. It comes down to you identifying it and it's different for everyone. So perfect is impossible. It doesn't, what does that even mean?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, you know, that we know that there are um, correlations between perfectionism and suicide and and that says it all really because you know if you are and my i wrote in my book i remember very clearly writing about my brother and saying the curse of perfectionism and you know and then i read uh, brene brown's book the gifts of imperfection and i went mm. absolutely you know it it it's just said so much and you know if you're a perfectionist when when is it ever enough it's never enough there's and no so end when, to it when is do there you ever, yeah. Yeah. and it's, it's just like, it's you know, like a
1: drug it's like sort of you know a drug addict or an alcoholic there is no end that you cannot get enough of it.
2: Yeah absolutely and I think you know it is such a uh, you know, and and my brother, when he was writing, he would say you know, I'm n- not not as good as everybody thinks that I am. Uh, and you know, and I thought that in sport, everyone used to look at me and think, oh, well, you can do this and this, and you know, um, and I'd think, oh, they're going to find that I'm not as good as they think I, uh, they yeah. think I am, and then I'll be a failure. You know, and um, that those messages that we're taught as children, I think, um, are really can be really destructive and and powerful, and especially now, you know, with Children and, and, you know, coming to the end of school and, and being defined by their results and all of that and the pressures we put on them is, is just horrendous.
1: It's enormous. So, yeah, would would you think the, the important thing for people, I guess, listening to this as well is um, really we can't rely on... At the core, we've got to understand that it's really... It's up to us to set, you know, how we perceive things and go about things and process things because if we leave it up to other factors it's just there's too many you know we're going to get overwhelmed and the change won't happen we've got to really create our own system you know our own you know that this to me is what I define as success and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or says that's their opinion doesn't mean they're right or wrong but for me these are my rules that I'm going to follow Uh, because otherwise you know and You you see it happen all the time where people are just taking in different opinions and then you're getting swayed and overwhelmed and there's no end to it. So it's, yeah.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I do. I agree with you. I think it's very much about healing that relationship with ourselves and and taking the time for that really deep self-reflection and deep thinking um, and and that can be quite isolating, as you said, because many yeah. people uh, don't want to think or talk on that level. It's quite you know, and uh, to be honest, I was quite I was frightened of that for a long time because I thought well, if I go too deep, what am I going? What if I don't find anything? Or what if I don't like what I find? Um, you know, and that frightened me. So it, it's difficult, but I think that people are searching for something now. I think they're really searching for that, and I and and that's a good thing. And realizing, you know, starting to perhaps think about what does what is the meaning of my life and who am I and do I you know really you have to heal that relationship to have a solid enough sense of yourself and who you are to be able to withstand all the external pressures um yeah. and that's a very very difficult thing to do and, and certainly something that I continue to work on um and and will continue to for, for the rest of my life I'm sure but mm-hmm. um it's certainly my relationship with myself has Changed enormously. I mean, I was so, I was an incredibly shy, um, child and, you know, I was crippled by anxiety and shyness really even before my mother or my brother died. Um, and, you know, friends that I've seen in England that, um, I hadn't seen for, for maybe 30 years. And when I went back to do the book launch there a few years ago, um, they said, wow, what, Hmm. you know, I can't believe you're the same person. And, and I think that was, very much about healing the relationship with myself and i think that we can all do that but it's really prioritizing and investing in that and believing in the worth of that but i think if you don't heal that then a how can you authentically connect with other people as well oh. and and really have healthy relationships
1: exactly you can't and you know i'm, I'm just relating to so much of what you said there as well because it's sort of i was so shy and you know told myself all these stories that you know you you're you're you, ca- you, you can't do this or when I was getting into public speaking or you know you, you don't have any ability to do this and no one's going to want to hear what you say and these stories were so embedded but um, you you quickly realize hang on these are literally just stories that don't actually actually have much truth behind them and I can I can choose what I want to do and how I go about it and it's so empowering once you realize that you realize well okay it opens up so many avenues and um, I think people need to understand that that they're these limiting beliefs are not always true and we are allowed to challenge that and, you know, we can take the onus back on ourselves and choose, you know, what we want to do and how we want to react to certain things. Um, yeah. so important. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I think those self-limiting beliefs, are, are like, they're so, so destructive and, and I think, you know, at, at their core, we all have that, you know, I'm afraid that I'm not lovable. Um, I'm afraid that I don't belong. Um, you know and I'm afraid that um, what was the last one I've forgotten now sorry but there you know I think there are I don't yeah I don't belong and I'm not lovable and I'm not worthy and I think those three self-limiting beliefs are things that we all have to face and overcome try to overcome at some point
1: yeah and um, another thing I wanted to ask you about before with um, having relationships how because I, I was relating to what you said before as well, and sort of the more personal work you do, it can be hard often in a to have an intimate relationship or find someone who is also willing to show that authenticity as well, and finding that balance and and relationships in general. I mean, there's so many people that are probably in relationships because it's filling a void for them, or um, I mean, the I don't know, I don't know what the exact statistics are, but I know divorce you know rates are crazy high and just you know that whole world how 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 do you think that should be navigated it's because it's so tricky and that that in itself brings so much of this anxiety and overwhelm that we've been talking about as well
2: yeah, I mean, I do. I, I, you know, if I'd conquered the relationship thing, I would, um, I'll tell you when that happens, but I'm not the way down the track. But, um, um, you know, what I, what I really remember, which uh, makes me laugh is, is one of the therapists that I saw in, um, I was struggling with a relationship and she drew me this spiral and she said, you know, in a relationship, you'll go round and you'll go round this spiral and you'll keep going around the same patterns. Um, and especially when it's two people who maybe have had difficult challenges in their lives or or childhood experiences and that you know you'll go round and round this spiral of repeating the same patterns and you'll think you're not moving but you are moving and in the end you'll get to the center and you'll either heal enough to stay within the relationship or heal enough to leave it Mm. and i just thought that that was that's always stuck with me um and i do believe that when you you know we're sort of duped into Especially when you have a very strong attraction to somebody that you know you think this is your soulmate and the person for me, and and I think actually it's a meeting of wounds often, and maybe the lesson that we need to learn from each other when you have that real powerful attraction, but it sort of confuses us into thinking this is this is the one, this is it um and you know i i i don't believe that anymore i think you know if you have a strong wound it makes it very difficult to have a healthy relationship and you have to heal that wound yourself to then be able to have a healthy relationship but many of us will meet someone because we want them to heal it for us
0: and i don't
2: think that we can do that um and it does when you haven't had a maybe healthy um role model of of a healthy relationship in your childhood it's very difficult um and I think you know I certainly realize that now that how I perceive love and what a healthy relationship is very different and I realize that love love is work it's it's not a feeling um you know and it's action and you know it's also a skill it's a skill and I you know when I learned that and I read that I did a lot of reading around what love was um when a friend asked me to do a reading at a wedding and I thought oh am I gonna how, you know ask me to talk about death or grief or something but I, I don't I can't talk about love um so I read every book under the sun and um but I think it's you know when I realized that loving was a skill, that was really a good thing for me because I thought, you know what well, I can learn a skill exactly, and and I yeah. think my last relationship you know it it did end, but we really we learnt from each other and we navigated that and and he taught me the skill of loving and and that was actually very healing and I now when i you know looking at relationship, I realize it's not. I don't go into it thinking, is this the one? You know, I Mm, think we're mm. we're kind of taught that there's going to be the one person. And in a way, I think we put too much emphasis on the one person. And, And I think it's not really about... It might be for some people, it might be the one person. But I think it's about all of our relationships and the quality of all of them and if you you don't necessarily have to have one primary relationship you can actually you know if you have many other meaningful relationships even if they're not intimate relationships they're so important as well um and it takes maybe some of the load and the, the 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 real angst behind having to have a primary partner that fulfills everything and i think that's an unrealistic expectation um that we're we're taught that it should be easy in a way to have a relationship. And, and now I see that it's a real work in progress and it is an action and it's a skill and we have to constantly keep working at it to make it work.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I love what you've, you've said there and it's, you know, and it, it is, I've, and I've, I think most people have experienced that where, you know, that all consuming feeling when you meet someone, you think it's, um, you know, this is going to heal me and this is the, this is the one for me, but, that often is actually the sign that, like you said, you're not ready because if you are willing to go all in and think of something like a relationship as the solution or the healing for you, that's not going to be sustainable. Um, And it relieves a lot when you understand that, like what you've spoken about, it takes so much of that anxiety away because you realize, hang on, there is no such thing as the one there's you know it's like saying oh i need to go and search for the perfect friend and hopefully somewhere in the world that one friend who's the most perfect friend for me exists we don't really tend to think about friends in that way and i think it's the same with the relationship it's about two people working together it's unconditional um it should be the same way we look at a family member that we would you know do whatever we can for them but we don't need anything in return um and Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect one there's going to be different people that we could have relationships with and they're all going to have different you know positive and negative elements to them And I think that removes a lot of that anxiety that um, you know culture has put on us and movies and songs and all the you know Hollywood putting sort of these idealisms in front of us that's um, put the wrong message where everyone's looking for this, um, unobtainable thing, you know, it's, um, and you never see what happens after, um, at the end of the movie with that relationship, you sort of see that very intense thing happen and then you don't see how it actually plays out. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's another big topic, but, um, I love everything we've spoken about here and, um, before we go in we finish with five just sort of quick questions that we ask every guest but before we go into that um i just wanted to ask you do you have and are there things that you would um from your own personal experience and what you in terms of uh looking after your own mental well-being daily um are there things that you do and could recommend to listeners i mean for me it's exercising meditation things like that do you have your own, you know, versions of um, things that you regularly do that make you just feel good and, and help you daily?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, I think exercise has always been a part of it for me and that's normal. I find that very easy. It's just such a part of me and who I am. So exercise definitely has a huge impact for me. Um, I've actually, since since COVID, I've started doing yoga every day uh, on on YouTube and I've found that to be incredibly it's been fantastic i realised that it's like wow i think it's had a huge effect on on my, on my mental health and, and really that that um sinking of mind body has been really valuable um and i had done yoga before but not every day and so just doing a little bit every day i've found to be really helpful um i do meditate as well and i use various different apps for that um you know headspace and calm um and smiling mind i've used all of them um so i do do that um and I guess, you know, all those basic things, like I, I certainly wrote a gratefulness diary of, you know, things to be grateful mm. for. And that was a subtle shift um, for me. And I don't write so much of them down, but I certainly actively think about that. And... You know that real process of savoring and mindfulness around things that to be grateful for and simple things, that really simple appreciation of, you know, being outside and fresh air or a lovely cup of coffee and those simple things. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, all of those things I think um, I do really on a daily basis, and I have a huge number of things that I kind of do you know, having my little toolkit that, you know, if, if, if it's a particularly difficult time, I'll, I'll grab them all and do them all. Um, and then, but those are the ones that I probably do really regularly every day.
1: Yeah, great. No, thank you for sharing that. And um, one final question for, we talked about it with in general, you know, isolation being so unhealthy and so causing so many problems. COVID's obviously caused so much isolation. Um, what would be your recommendation to people when we are in isolation how can we try and make it um you know less of a difficult experience
2: i think using that time to kind of really reset mm-hmm. and to think about you know using that that what what during lockdown what was it that i learned that i really valued that i loved about it and what did i really miss and and i think that really helps to give clarity around you know how we can best direct our lives from now onwards and and that's a good thing to kind of start to think about those more difficult questions and and perhaps having the headspace and the time to actually look at those look inside and go what do I want and mm. and uh, what's missing in my life and and how can I you know what's really important and what do I value and and often the fact that many of us have lost something and um, whether that's you know the fantasy for the future or whether it's a job or whether it's that actual person I think it really helps to give us clarity around what's important so um that would certainly be my advice
1: yeah really great well yeah thank you for that and we'll go into these final questions and these can be um you know one line answers or whatever comes to mind really it's sort of um we just it's interesting to sort of ask the same questions each week and see the the different answers that come from the guests so the first one is uh best childhood memory
2: Um, I think that would be getting into bed on a Sunday morning with the me and my brother and sister and my mum and dad, um, before, obviously before my mum was ill and just all being in bed on a Sunday morning and bringing a cup of tea into bed.
1: Yeah, nice. I like that. (laughs) Um, what, what do you think is currently the biggest burden on mental health in society?
2: Disconnection without a doubt disconnection from ourselves from other people and from the world around us
1: yeah yeah Um, where do you see mental health in society in 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 10 years time do you see things uh, improving getting worse do you see a bit of both maybe Um, where do you see things heading
2: I think that there will be a greater polarisation so I think that there will be a subset of people who perhaps grow through through the pandemic and through this current trauma and, and really want more out of life and reframe their life and, and find ways to grow from that and find more meaning and purpose and, and look at their lives for, um, and change them for the better um and increase their well-being um but i think there will also be a huge increase in suicide rates and a huge increase in anxiety and and other mental health disorders as a result of this current time um Mm. and so i think there will be a greater polarization i'd love to say that we will all come through this and grow but um i I don't think that that's going to be the case
1: yeah um what would you say is your personal definition of happiness
2: I think that would be connection, you know, the opposite. So connection, connection to myself um, and to other people, having quality relationships and meaningful relationships with people and really living my truth and being, you know, connected to myself in a way that allows me to live and behave in in a way that's completely in line with my values and my core belief system Um, and, you know, spending time being connected to the world around me. And if I have all of those things, then I think that is the ultimate enduring sense of happiness.
1: I love that. Um, Final one, what would you say is the most courageous thing you've ever done?
2: Turning towards myself um, and looking at the darkness inside me and the, the darker aspects of myself that I didn't want to see. Um, and I think, you know, doing that in different ways through writing, um, and, and obviously then having my book published, which meant that people were going to read it. Um, and, and as I said earlier, singing, you know, singing mm-hmm. was a really important part of that as well. Um, even though, you know, I didn't stand up on a stage and sing, um, but yes, yeah, certainly turning towards myself and the pain uh, of my past and what happened to my brother and my father's illness and my fear of mental illness, all of those things, um, that, took the most courage it certainly wasn't going into a burning building
1: Hmm. yeah no well i mean they're incredibly courageous things and uh yeah i just want to say you know thank you again for making the time to talk to me today i i've really learnt myself a lot through this i've i find your story so inspiring and i think you should be so proud of what you're doing i mean to be able to just use your experience and story and go out and actually deliver that into the world and help people i think that's just incredible and goes such a long way so i think it's amazing what you're doing and um thank you again and and actually before i finish um i think you talked said it before with your book but for anyone wanting to learn more about you and find your book etc where can they go is it best if they just go to your your website we'll put links in the um show notes as well but um yeah, yeah so us? my
2: web my website um is uh tarajlal dot com. Um I also have a website called cyclingoz.com because I'm planning to cycle across Australia um in November this year. I'm supported um with a view to raising money for lifeline and, and raising awareness around mental health issues. Um Amazing. so there's that website. Um And yeah, so most of it, I'm actually ambassador for standby support after suicide. So for anybody that has been impacted by suicide that might be listening to this, certainly I would recommend going to their website, um, which is standbysupport.com.au.
1: Great. Well, thank you again for making the time.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure, Nick, and thank you so much. It's been really great to speak with you and and to listen to your story and and other podcasts that you've done. And I think, you know, to find, to be able to do the work that you do um, at your age with your past experiences is is just incredible. So, yeah, I really, you know, applaud you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. This episode of Move Your Mind was produced and edited by Tim Buzan. Thanks to Tara Lal for joining me today for Move Your Mind.